Please join us for Founders Day 2018, Chaos, Complexity, and Creativity, on Saturday, March 24, 2018, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Three keynote speakers, Sam Kimballs, Richard Tarnas, and Catherine Jones, will present on topics that synthesize various possible responses to the challenging complexities of the cultural, political, and environmental chaos that currently both unites and divides humankind. For more about that and other programs, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Psychology Seminars from the Archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The Way of the Sly One, Gurdjieff, Popensky, and Jung, with Ken James, Ph.D. This episode is the first session of the five-part series, The Way of the Sly One, The Psychology of Our Possible Evolution in the Writings of Gurdjieff, Popensky, and Jung. Most death psychological theories look backward into the personal history of the individual in order to find the causes for neurotic symptoms, gain insight into their persistence in the present, and diminish their effects in the future. A key feature of Jungian psychology is the addition of a forward focus, a constructive teleological emphasis on the meaning of symptoms, and the need to discover what the symptom is calling the sufferer to notice and change. This places Jung in a category of psychological practitioners who seek to promote the possible evolution of the person from present status to future transcendence. Russian spiritual teacher G.I. Gurdjieff sought to bring his students to a place of consciousness that went far beyond what was generally thought of as, quote, being awake. The core of his teaching, that humankind was unfinished and did not possess a soul, but was capable of creating one through intense inner work created discomfort in his followers and stimulated them to find ways to break through to new levels of awareness, a method he called the way of the sly one. Opinsky, Gurdjieff's foremost disciple, also taught about the possible evolution of human consciousness and provided a more systematized interpretation of Gurdjieff's teachings. Dr. James is a Jungian analyst who maintains a private practice in Chicago, Illinois. His areas of expertise include dream work and psychoanalysis, archetypal dimensions of analytic practice, divination and synchronicity, and ways to sustain the vital relationship between body, mind, and spirit. He has done postdoctoral work in music therapy, the Kabbalah, spirituality, and theology, and uses these disciplines to inform his work as a Jungian analyst. For the complete series, visit our website, youngchicago.org. You'll also notice, those of you that have had me for courses before, that there's no written material that I'm handing out to you. And I'm working with very light written material. This is in tradition, following the tradition of the fourth way, which is to uh, <clears throat> train people not to try to take notes, 
record things, get things down in writing. I'm not about to tell you not to. But it is interesting if, when you realize that, uh, for example, one of the books, In Search of the Miraculous, Fragments of an Unknown Teaching, is the author title of this book, was put together based on recollections of Ospensky, of the teachings of Gurdjieff. Um, because no recording in terms of writing down during any of the meetings was permitted. That was to encourage people to do the kind of inner work that was required because, of course, one of the things that uh, each of these uh, teachers, each of these men, was attempting to uh, do was to wake people up to the fact that they live in sleep, walk around in sleep, and die in sleep. And, and part, of, part of the work is to get the energies <clears throat> together enough to wake up, even if only for a moment. So this was real hard for me to come in here without any, <laughs> any writing at all. And I wasn't going to even have notes, but I just have a little bit, so it's not. <laughs> just page numbers mostly. Okay, I want to tell you about the books that are required for the class, and then about some other books that I think it would be a good idea for you to get a hold of. One is um, In Search of the Miraculous. This is by Uspensky. And this is, uh, the other title of this, as I said, is Fragments of an Unknown Teaching. This is a summary of Gurdjieff's teaching, a systematic summary which Gurdjieff himself never uh, produced. And um, Gurdjieff was said to have seen a, a, a manuscript of In Search of the Miraculous. And this was after Gurdjieff and Ospensky had split, had separated, gone their separate ways. But Gurdjieff did say that this book did get the teaching down truly. So it has sort of the imprimatur of Gurdjieff. But this would be definitely not the way Gurdjieff would have taught uh, in such a systematic fashion. Then Ospensky's own book on the work, The Psychology of, this is his book too, but it's a summary of Gurdjieff's teaching, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. I tried to um, make this title more politically correct when I titled the class, The Psychology of Our Possible Evolution, but these books are a product of the time in which they were written. This is a series of five lectures given by Ospensky <clears throat> on the material in what has come to be known as the fourth way, which, and I'll explain the meaning of that term. So this book is a really remarkable summary of both the methods and teachings of uh, Gurdjieff and Ospensky. And then Jung's book, The Undiscovered Self. This is an earlier edition, but some of you have the newer edition, uh, which is a series of essays that Jung wrote in the 50s uh, that I find are remarkably similar in terms of their intent <clears throat> and their tone to the teachings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky, which is why I thought it would be interesting to have a class that looked at all three of these in the same way. Now, those books are required, and they're fairly reasonable. There, is, there are a couple of books that you might want to investigate getting, one of which is even cheaper than all the books that I've asked you to buy, and the other is more expensive than any, all the books put together. <clears throat> there is a separate index put out to In Search of the Miraculous. It's an index by a British man named Anthony Blake, A.G.E. Blake. It's far more detailed than the index in the back of the book, uh, In Search of the Miraculous. And this might be a good idea to get a hold of. I can give you the name of a mail order place that stocks these. It's called, um, oh, Jesus. Elizabeth Evans is the name of the proprietor. It's in California. By the way, books. And I'll get the uh, phone number and everything for you. Um, they, it's a, books, it's a, a bookseller that deals almost exclusively in books of the fourth way. And that would be, yeah, it's a good one to know. And I'll get, in fact, I'll Xerox some pages from her latest catalog. There, I think it's kind of a, a small-scale operation, but I've always found them to be very reputable, and they deal with both new and used books in this area. So that's Index to In Search of the Miraculous. <clears throat> the other book that I really think, if you're interested and serious about studying Gurdjieff, you need to, to purchase, and that's All and Everything, 
which uh, has the alternative title, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Uh, we talked a lot, myself and the people who uh, run the, the program here at the Institute. This book cost $45. And they felt that for people who were not committed to studying it, that might be a little bit of a hefty uh, price. Also, this isn't the kind of book that you're just going to read in however many weeks this class is going to go, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. Because, you know, Gurdjieff is notorious for having paragraphs that actually are only one sentence but go on for about three pages. And by the you really, the way it's written, you really have to do the kind of inner work that he is talking about just in order to comprehend it. Add to that the fact that when this book was first uh, promulgated among Gurdjieff's followers, it was not in printed form. It was read aloud during, during the many dinners that Gurdjieff would have uh, during which time he would do his teaching. So when you really realize that uh, for the early days of um, the existence of this manuscript, it wasn't in printed form. You could see how difficult it probably was for people to make heads or tails out of it. I'll be referring to parts of this, but it's, uh, it's a good book to have. Now, <clears throat> a little bit of a editorial history here. This book was published a while back, and for a while was available in paperback by Dutton publishers, and it went out of print. Uh, Jean de Zaltzman, Madame de Zaltzman, who was uh, one of Gurdjieff's foremost followers, she recently died, I think a couple of years ago, at the age of 101, 102, something like that. She was uh, an instructor of dancing, and after Gurdjieff's death, took over uh, the teaching in France. She authorized a revision of Beelzebub's Tales that's published by another publisher. It's not this book. And it is called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, which is the alternate um, uh, title. Two Rivers Press, which is a publishing house that um, is, is, uh, that stems from a, a group, a Gurdjieff group, here in the United States, got together the funding to authorize a republication of this volume, All and Everything, which is a 100% uh, facsimile of the original volume. Now, I've read both of them and compared them to the old uh, copies that I have. And I really, maybe there's a sentence or two that's made a little bit clearer in the Madame de Zaltzman version than in this version. And if there are, I can't find them. So, you know, they're, it's, they're both pretty much true to the original. The Zaltzman one is, the translation is $5 more. But there's some other reason why I prefer this one over the other one, and that's the, the pagination. There is a very large index to all and everything that's, I think, probably going to be republished shortly. It's, it's as big as this. But that index is keyed to the pages in this edition. So if you're going to be investing in this at all, you're probably going to, at some point, want to buy that index, too. And that, that's why this edition would probably be a better one to buy, because the index is keyed to this edition and not to the other one. <clears throat> and there's probably, I, not probably, there's all kinds of political things going on between the two groups that authorize the publication. So it'll uh, be interesting to see if I can discover any differences, or if those of you that want to buy both, and we could read it together and see if you could find what words are different. Then there's another book that you might want to uh, purchase if you can find it, sometimes in used bookstores. This has not yet become republished, although there are enough of them out there. Psychological Exercises and Essays by A.R. Orage, O-R-A-G-E, <clears throat> which is a summary of just exercises that were used by Gurdjieff groups to enhance one's development of self-awareness. Uh, <clears throat> it starts out with simple exercises like countdown from 100 to 1, just all kinds of counting exercises, and it goes to advanced exercises like, um, oh, there's a paragraph of about 50 sentences, and you're supposed to read it or hear it once and then try to, to repeat it or, or come up with as much as you want. 
<clears throat> the techniques that are taught in the fourth way are techniques to develop one's awareness so that if you, if you work diligently using the methodology, you become more and more aware of just how asleep all of us are, and especially oneself. <clears throat> this was not a method of self-aggrandizement, but really a method to humble oneself when one confronts the fact that for most of our lives, most of the time, we're asleep. And this, of course, is what Jung was teaching. And it's the basis of doing any kind of work, as far as I'm concerned, using Jungian teachings or any of the other teachings that we're going to cover in this class. <clears throat> it is really to make us aware of how asleep we are, not so that we can punish ourselves, but so that we could work very hard for moments of awakening. And there's a sort of a difficulty here when we start talking about self-awareness and, and being uh, awake. And that is, when you talk about it, for a moment, you become awake. And so it's hard to believe that most of the time you're asleep. So it's been helpful to me in the course of the day to wake up occasionally, if, if that's granted to me, and realize how asleep I've been. Put me behind the wheel of my car, and unless I'm sitting on a bear trap, I fall asleep. And I'll go from wherever I'm starting out to wherever I end up, and I'll get out of the car and I'll think, now where was I? And preparing for this class has made it even more, uh, make you even more aware of how much uh, asleep you are. <clears throat> okay, the name of the course is um, The Way of the Sly One. Psychology of Our Possible Evolution According to Gurdjieff, Ospensky, and Jung. The teachings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky are often called teachings of the fourth way. And they're called that because in both uh, Search of the Miraculous and Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution, there are four ways of spiritual awakening that are discussed. There are three traditional ways and the fourth way, which is the way that's taught by Gurdjieff. The three ways <clears throat> of uh, religious awakening are referred to as the way of the fakir or faker, the way of the monk, and the way of the yogi. Now, the way of the fakir is the way that relies on the physical body Fakirs in India are those holy ones who take a position, for example, and don't move for 20 years. Or undergo tremendous physical austerities in order to achieve moments of awakening. Sometimes they won't eat for months and months or years and years at a time. Or they'll sit in dung or, or on ground that's very hard and they'll be without any clothing. It's a way that emphasizes austerity of the physical body. The way of the monk <clears throat> is a way that develops based on an emotional response to the divine. So the fakir works through the physical body. The monk works through the emotional aspect of the human being and strives for devotion, especially devotion of love and feeling toward whatever is considered the god or the divine source. And the yogi is intellectual. It seeks to understand. It seeks to <clears throat> engage in practices that lead to an ever deeper awareness on a cognitive level of the source or the, or the Godhead, if you will. Now, Gurdjieff and Ospensky refer to the way of the fakir as the first way, the way of the monk as the second way, and the way of the yogi as the third way. But each of these ways requires that we leave our ordinary life 
and go into a place or state of living that is apart from our ordinary way of life. So that each of these will lead to enlightenment if practiced diligently and sincerely. There's no, no doubt of that. But the difficulty with each of these is that it requires a complete separation of the one who practices it from one's daily life. So in fact, if awakening is achieved, and there's every possibility in each of these ways that it will be achieved, it's achieved apart from the collective. And the question of integrating back into the collective usually isn't even considered. It's the apartness that is almost championed in each of these. It's somehow that these methods set you apart from the collective. The fourth way is the way of the sly one. And the fourth way, the way of the sly one, works on the body, the emotions, and the intellect simultaneously within one's own life. One is reminded uh, of the Buddha's um, teaching that in this very life, enlightenment can be achieved. <clears throat> the way of the sly one uses all of these methods and attempts to integrate them in the life that we are living now. Now these three ways, the way of the fakir, the way of the monk, and the way of the yogi, point to different centers that we have. And this is another teaching of Gurdjieff and Spensky, the teaching about centers. We have a center that directs the movements of our body, our physical body, and that's called the moving center. And the way of the fakir is a way that emphasizes moving center. The way of the monk is a way that emphasizes emotional center or feeling center. And the way of the yogi <clears throat> is the, the way that emphasizes the intellectual center and each of us Here's where we get into a little bit of typology. Each of us has a particular affinity for either the moving center, the emotional center, or the intellectual center. And so all of us at, you know, kind of at the start of our quest for uh, inner awareness and awakening are either man number one, man number two, or man number three. Man number one is a man whose center of gravity or whose most familiar center is the moving center, which is the center that governs the physical body. Man number two is a man whose center of gravity or most comfortable center is the emotional center. And that covers emotional responses to life. And man number three is a man who is a person who is centered in the intellectual center. And we all generally fall into one of those three categories according to Gurdjieff's teaching. <clears throat> the way of the sly one seeks to move us from the level of, of, I'll use man, but it could be man or woman, man number one, two, or three, to what is called in the work man number four, which is a transitional state The teaching says that there actually are seven levels of humanity. Man number one, two, and three, which are listed here. Man number four, and then there's man number five, six, and seven. Now, <clears throat> rarely do you see in any of the teachings much discussion of man number five, six, and seven. 
because these teachings were very practical. And there's no point in us trying to discover, say, Gurdjieff and Ospensky, what the characteristics are of man number seven, because most of us will never reach it. In fact, most of us will never even meet anybody who's at that level. There were no claims made by either Gurdjieff or Ospensky themselves to be man number seven. Now, there, were, there was a lot of projection of that, of course, from the followers of these people, just as there were a lot of projections onto Jung. And so people are scandalized when we hear about Jung's private life, just as people were scandalized when they heard about Gurdjieff's private life. And Spensky's private life seems to have been pretty um, conventional, but then he was a mathematician. And I can say that because so was I. See, I'm not, I'm not you know, casting stones without knowing what I'm talking about. You know, I'm not anymore, <laughs> but those were calm years. Um, anyway. <laughs> But people were shocked when they discovered, you know, sort of the secret life that Jung led, and everyone scandalized by it. Well, Jung really didn't make a whole lot of claims for himself as being this great, enlightened, all-conscious being. Neither did Gurdjieff or Ospensky, but all three of them did permit and sometimes contribute to a sort of an aura of mystery about them. So there's a little bit of trickster, I think, in all of these people. But most of the, of the work teaching centers on man number four, the transitional state, because all of the work seeks to bring us to the point where we are at the level of man number four. <clears throat> now, in, most of this is found in the book In Search of the Miraculous. And the teaching on the way of the sly one, or the fourth way, is found on page 48 to 50. And I just want to read a few lines from the book. <clears throat> the fourth way, it says, requires no retirement into the desert, does not require one to give up and renounce everything by which one formerly lived. The fourth way begins much further on than the way of the yogi. This means that a person must be prepared for the fourth way, and this preparation must be acquired in ordinary life and be a very serious one, embracing many different sides. Furthermore, a person must be living in conditions favorable for work on the fourth way, or in any case, conditions which do not render it impossible. It must be understood that both in the inner and in the external life of a person, there may be conditions which create insuperable barriers to the fourth way. Furthermore, the fourth way has no definite forms like the way of the fakir, the monk, and the yogi. And first of all, it has to be found. This is the first test. It is not as well known as the three traditional ways. There are many people who have never heard of the fourth way, and there are others who deny its existence or possibility. In the second half of the class tonight and the next time we meet, we're going to be watching a film called uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men which is a film adaptation and dramatization of one of Gurdjieff's books. Gurdjieff himself actually wrote uh, very few books. He wrote um, Meetings with Remarkable Men, which purports to be his uh, autobiography. He wrote uh, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. <coughs> he wrote um, The Herald of Coming Good, which was a little pamphlet that was circulated in the United States prior, I think prior to uh, Gurdjieff making his first tour of the United States in an attempt to get money, um, which was another scandalous thing about Gurdjieff. He seemed to want people to pay exorbitant amounts of money. But uh, subsequent research has shown that he also provided charity to people who wanted to work with him but couldn't pay. So he would sort of soak the rich to get enough money to cover the people that couldn't pay. Uh, he also wrote a book, an unfinished book, called Life is Real Only Then When I Am, which is very enigmatic. It ends with an unfinished sentence. And I'll, I'll bring it in one of the nights of the class, but the sentence is something like, and so the thing we must do to achieve full awakening is, then it ends. Now, of course, we're told that it ends because either he died before he could finish it, or you know, the, the final pages were lost. 
But I don't know. I think that that's probably, it ends exactly the way it's supposed to end. Uh, so we have uh, Beelzebub's Tales, Herald of Coming Good, Tales of Mark. Oh, and then there's um, early talks of Gurdjieff. Uh, one of the, there's a collection of, of early uh, talks of Gurdjieff that really isn't written by Gurdjieff. It's a summary of notes taken in classes, not in classes, but after classes that people remembered of Gurdjieff's teachings. Um, and unfortunately, when I tried to pick a text for this course and I wanted to get one written by Gurdjieff, there was the all and everything, which cost about 50 bucks, and all the others seemed to be out of print. I do think that the uh, By the Way Books has copies, if you're interested. And I think that's just a good, she also carries a lot of books that people um, interested in Jungiana would like. But she really deals with a lot of rare or used books, too. So it's a good resource. <clears throat> but that's about it from Gurdjieff's pen. Uspensky has several books uh, that he wrote before he met and worked with Gurdjieff, Tertium Organum, which is uh, an early work of his on the fourth dimension and on a new way of thinking. That's, that's a not Gurdjieff book. Um, psychology, no. Yeah, Psychology of, our, of Man's Possible Evolution, which is a summary of Gurdjieff's teaching. Um, Search of the Miraculous, which is uh, a summary of Gurdjieff's teaching. And there's one other whose name escapes me, even, A New Model of the Universe, which is, is uh, Uspensky's attempt to put together a way of conceiving of uh, human life within the cosmos. And that is, was written when he wasn't yet a student of Gurdjieff, but I think he may have known a little bit about Gurdjieff's teachings. And then, of course, Jung, in contrast to these two gentlemen, wrote a lot. And we have a lot of his writing. So. <clears throat> now, what are the methods used in the fourth way? It's enough to say that the way of the sly one seeks to embed us in our everyday life, in our daily life, and tries to get us to awaken within that life. Let's look at some of the methods and some of the assumptions or basic teachings of the fourth way. First of all, basic teachings of the fourth way. The basic principles of the fourth way <clears throat> have been summarized by many, many people. The first, the first principle, and the one that usually sends people right out of the room, is we are machines. Period. There is nothing human about us. We may look human, but we are mechanical. <clears throat> it's our resistance to accepting this particular principle that proves our machine-like nature. Every response from what we would consider our most loving response to our most unconscious automatic response, all are mechanical. I had an interesting, I don't know a whole lot about the woman who runs By The Way Books, but you know when you talk to somebody over the phone, you can develop a real relationship like you could never have face to face. But for a while, I would call to place my orders with her, and I would get the answering, you know, the little voicemail thing. So one night I called, it was very late, but I'd all gotten voicemail, so I never really thought about it, although I kind of knew that it probably rang either in their home or whatever. Well, the woman who owns it, owned by a husband and wife, answered. She said, hello. And I said, oh, my God, I was expecting a machine. She said, well, you got one. <laughs> and I thought, here's somebody that really lives this teaching, you know. <laughs> kind of, whoa. She didn't even miss a beat. So I really liked her after that. The second principle is that we are unfinished. So if it isn't bad enough that we're machines, we're machines in whose, part, uh, whose parts haven't even been put together properly. 
So we're like, you know, the car with a few things kind of laying around on the floor of the garage. But we're walking around making decisions. One of the chapters in <clears throat> All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, that um, I hope we can get to, I'm going to see if I can find a way to duplicate it, is a chapter called The Terror of the Situation, which is just about this very thing, that we are machines and we are unfinished, and there are people who are machines who are unfinished, who are operating on our bodies, teaching our children, running our government, you know, repairing our plumbing and electricity, or all of the jobs that all of us do. You know, doing analysis on people, running companies, you know, being attorneys, being whatever, in our sleep most of the time, or in our machine-like state. A third principle is that we have the chance to stop being machines. And we stop being machines by doing something called work. Gurdjieff was very clear, as was Aspensky and Jung, that there always must be payment for anything that we receive in the spiritual realm. Now, most people who are too attached to their money interpret payment in only one way and run the other way because they don't want to give up any money. But it was very clear in the teachings of all of these people that the payment that they were talking about was not exclusively money. In fact, money was the symbolic and perhaps least important type of payment that was required. Gurdjieff spoke about the need to pay for our arising, meaning pay for our presence on earth. And the way we do it is through work. A student <clears throat> of both Gurdjieff and Ospensky, uh, John Bennett, who was from England, but he started work groups here in the United States, calls the kind of work that we must do in order to achieve awakening, um, conscious labor and intentional suffering. So we are going to have to labor. It's part of the human condition. Work is part of the human condition. And we will suffer. That's part of the human condition, too. We can work and suffer like, and the phrase they used, although I think it's disrespectful of the animal kingdom, was we could work and suffer like dogs or like animals, meaning with no consciousness at all, merely go through our life, work, suffer, die, and become, uh, in the, in the uh, fourth way, the, the phrase is food for the moon which will satisfy the reason we were put here anyway. I mean, nature has no need for us to become conscious. We're, we do just fine just walking around, eating, sleeping, excreting, having sex, and dying one day, and you know, fertilizing a tree or allowing tulips to grow. There's, there's no vested interest in nature in having us awaken. Or we can work and suffer like human beings. But to do that, it requires conscious labor and intentional suffering. The concept of intentional suffering, I find in my practice, very helpful for people who are going through very difficult times, as we all do in our lives. If you're going to suffer the loss of a loved one, the, the ending of a particular phase in your life, the, the coming of perhaps an illness that you didn't want but have to go through, you're going to have to suffer that anyway. If we can begin to learn how to suffer intentionally, to intend to suffer, it can transform the suffering. It doesn't make nice nice. But if that's what you're looking for, stop at number one. But if you progress, you have to understand that work is going to mean you're going to get more deeply involved in suffering. Of course, you're also going to get more deeply involved in joy. But we don't press that part. 
Because if you press that part too much, any machine can respond to that. But can you accept the challenge to have to pay? That's the important thing. I'm sure we've all had that experience. You know, you, you have to come across with some form of payment. And that's the place where we, we often balk. We wonder if we have enough resources. Well, the resources aren't always financial, much deeper. <clears throat> and the last basic principle can be expressed. Now I know why they don't put too many of these out. They kind of dry up. And then you have to spit on them a little bit. That'll be on the tape. I'm talking about the, the marker, <laughs> spitting on the marker. Okay. The fourth one is. We have, I'll put it in another color, maybe red would be good. We have the possibility of creating a soul. Now this aspect of the teaching, I must confess, was the most distressing for me. Because the religious tradition in which I was raised taught that I was born with a soul that it came sort of free with my body, and that it would last long after my body gave up. And there's some comfort in that, to know that, you know, I'll go stumbling through life, but it's okay. As long as I, you know, hit the confessional a few minutes before I kick off, I'm going where it belongs, and my soul will be fine forever and ever. That was what I was taught, and that was what I, I believed. And it allowed me to sleep for a long time, and still occasionally does. But the fact that we're taught we have the possibility of creating a soul. It's very frightening. Because that implies, of course, that if you don't do what you need to do to wake up, you won't create one. Now, I don't know about whether this is true or not. <laughs> and that's such a humble statement, I can't believe I said it. <laughs> but I know this. As a heuristic, this is the best principle I can come upon. As something that would guide my behavior, this is a pretty good one. Because if I'm not quite sure if I have one, but I think it would be a good thing to have once my body decides it doesn't want to be here anymore, this more than any of the others, and this may be more self-confessional than anything about the teaching, this more than any of the others makes me want to learn and work and do whatever I can to wake up for as many times as I can while I'm alive. And note that I said wake up for as many times as I can, because being awake by no means is an ongoing thing. I mean, maybe Sai Baba. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a few people whose work I don't know are awake all the time. But I sure know I'm not. On a good day, maybe I'll come to once. You know, like really get there. And usually that's like for this little bit of a time. But you work on it. You sit, you read, you study, you, you try to live as consciously as you can. And according to Gurdjieff and Ospensky, all of those moments and I'll talk about what they're called, all of those little moments where we sort of come to an awareness of who we are get added up. And it's all of those moments that put together the soul that we're ultimately creating. So they all count. It's like a big bank account. Yes? I remember it's just all the multiple ideas about Yeah, it's going to be, those are the methods. Right. Now, these are the principles. And we're left with the possibility of creating a soul. What methodology can we use? What can we do? Well, first of all, the question, what can we do, would be answered by Gurdjieff and Ospensky with the phrase, we cannot do. It's ridiculous to think we can do. Everything happens. We are a product of three forces. <clears throat> and the forces are luck, 
chance and hazard. And what we call our life is a combination of those three things. So my life as a sleeping, unfinished machine, my life that looks like it has a direction and a goal and, you know, achievement is nothing more than the result of luck, chance, and hazard. Pretty scary. There's only one thing that we can add to this that can tilt it in, in, in favor of awakening, and that is consciousness. And that's why in all these teachings, <clears throat> Gurdjieff, Pospensky, and Jung, consciousness is the most important thing. Because that is the only tool we have to counteract the effects of luck, chance, and hazard. Luck, chance, and hazard are always all over the place. Surely you must have had the experience of being in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes? If you, if you use the products of luck, chance, and hazard properly, consciousness can be distilled from it. But what do you do? That's exactly right. And that's in the teaching, <clears throat> person only comes to the fourth way because they discover it. Right, right. <clears throat> it's the same mystery for me. It's, you know, how does somebody become conscious? How does somebody decide to stop a series of... It, that, the paradigm of grace is just as good as anything. To, you know, it, it names something that's a mysterious movement that we really can't connect with. So how do we foster consciousness? Well, <clears throat> the first way is self-observation. <clears throat> this can be done by yourself, or it can be done in pairs or in small groups. It's merely going through your day and stopping at certain points and just observing who and what you are and what you are doing at that moment. There's an exercise that Gurdjieff used with some of his groups. In fact, it was one of the exercises that he demonstrated when he um, had a, a performance of his dances. He always billed himself as a teacher of dancing, Gurdjieff did. And uh, he would put on these performances ostensibly to get uh, money. And he put some performances on in uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City. And one of the exercises he used to help develop self-observation is called the stop exercise. And in these exercises, he would just call stop at a certain point in the midst of whatever. And whatever they were doing, <clears throat> the people who were following him would just stop and perhaps observe themselves if they were lucky. Well, in this performance, the entire group was running toward the orchestra pit. And Gurdjieff hollered stop. And they did, but some of them just fell right in and didn't move. And it was scandalous. You know, everything in, in those days was scandalous. I think this was probably in the 30s. But that was an example of an exercise that was used to develop self-observation, the ability to observe oneself, the stop exercise. <clears throat> the second tool is self-remembering. <clears throat> self-remembering is the capacity to be as aware of oneself as one is of the outer world. So if this is the so-called outer world and this is the inner world, Self-remembering is consciousness that has two faces, that is able to be fully occupied in what the outer world is presenting 
and also aware of one's presence in the outer world. Now, self-remembering can be accomplished using any or all of the centers. Moving center, feeling center, thinking center. Ideally, self-remembering would be accomplished by using all the centers. This, is, this teaching is echoed in Jung when he talks about attempting to be aware in the moment, be conscious of what complexes within us are guiding our behavior. In fact, when we talk about sort of parallels between Urge of Uspensky and Jung, Jung's teaching on complexes comes closest to what uh, Uspensky calls the little eye that runs around and, and seems to think that it, it is our being. <clears throat> A third method is the capacity to think in new categories. Now, thinking in new categories <coughs> was Uspensky's goal in all of his writings, even before he came upon the teachings of Gurdjieff. What Gurdjieff gave Uspensky was an entire cosmological system that permitted Uspensky to think in new ways, and in ways that hung together. But of all of these methods, self-remembering stands out as the primary method for coming to consciousness and developing the energy to combat luck, chance, and hazard. Are there any questions? What is self-remembering? <clears throat> self-remembering is the capacity in the moment to hold consciousness not only on what's going on outside of one, but also on one's presence in that moment. Right. At the same time. Right. And in fact, in Search of the Miraculous, I think um, he gives, page 118 to 121, um, Ospensky says, he's quoting Gurdjieff, not one of you has noticed the most important thing I have pointed out to you, Gurdjieff said. That is to say, not one of you has noticed that you do not remember yourselves. He gave particular emphasis to these words. You do not feel yourselves. You are not conscious of yourselves. With you, it observes, just as it speaks, it thinks, it laughs. You do not feel, I observe, I notice, I see. Everything still is noticed, is seen. In order really to observe oneself, one must first of all remember oneself. He again emphasized these words. Try to remember yourselves when you observe yourselves, and later on tell me the results. Only those results will have any value that are accompanied by self-remembering. Otherwise, you yourselves do not exist in your observation. In which case, what are all your observations worth? These words of Gurdjieff made me think a great deal, says Ospensky. It seemed to me at once that they were the key to what he had said before about consciousness. But I decided to draw no conclusions whatever, but to try to remember myself while observing myself. My very first attempt showed me how difficult it was. Attempts at self-remembering failed to give any results except to show me that in actual fact, we never remember ourselves. The handout that I gave you this evening <clears throat> has several things in it that I thought would be of interest to you and of interest to our work. Hello, here's a handout. There you go. There's several things here, let me explain. If, uh, if you remember last week, I said that the author of the Mary Poppins books also wrote a very short um, essay on Gurdjieff, and I've uh, Xeroxed it for you, and that comprises the first few pages of this, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff by P.L. Travers. It's, um, it's a booklet available from Traditional Studies Press in Canada, but I took the liberty of um, Xeroxing it here <clears throat> so that we can share it uh, for class purposes only. And I will, of course, collect these at the end of the evening. Okay.
then the second uh, piece here, uh, comes from a book of essays on documents on contemporary dervish communities. I gave you the title page, but the article and the table of contents, but the article that I have um, reproduced once again for instructional use here in class is an account of the Sarmoon Brotherhood, which um, of course is the brotherhood that in the film that we're seeing Gurdjieff is attempting to uh, contact. And that also is a very short um, piece, <clears throat> but it will be useful to our uh, discussion. And then finally, two very short essays written by uh, Madame de Zaltzman, who was, many consider Gurdjieff's foremost disciple, and certainly the one that took up his teaching following his death in 1949. And there's a volume published by Continuum Press called Gurdjieff, Essays and Reflections on the Man and His Teaching. And the first two very short essays in this book are these essays by Madame de Zaltzman, who lived 101 years. So, kind of makes you wonder, maybe this is something we should study in earnest here. If it, and apparently was quite healthy up till the end. So, uh, I thought that, that those would be pieces that we could uh, spend some time with, if there is some time. <clears throat> but I did want to point out a few items in the P.L. Travers essay that uh, really, for me, summarize a great deal of Gurdjieff's uh, philosophy. On, <clears throat> here we go, on right, the page that has this line in the middle, so it's on the one, two, third page in. Beginning of this page, <clears throat> his impact was tremendous. It was clear that he had come not to bring peace, but a special kind of inner warfare, and that his mission in life was to destroy men's complacency and make them aware of their limitations. Only by such means, by what he called conscious labors and intentional suffering, was it possible to bring about their inner development. That phrase, conscious labor and intentional suffering, is an important one for understanding the efforts that are required in fourth way work. And I also think the efforts that are required in uh, Jungian work. Because what it says, the, the adjectives in that phrase are very important. Conscious labors and intentional suffering. There is nothing in our life that says we will not have to labor and there's nothing in our life that says we will not have to suffer. Those are givens of the human state. What Gurdjieff asks is that we consciously labor and that we intentionally suffer. And that's what's different. This is not a method <clears throat> that will allow us to escape either labor or suffering. Those are part and parcel of what it means to be human. Rather, the method allows us a way to transform the necessary elements of labor and suffering through consciousness and intention. And one might say that all of the Gurdjieff-Ospensky work, and I would also like to add, all of Jungian uh, analytical psychology is about conscious labor and intentional suffering. What I think all of these three individuals have in common in their teaching is that nobody says you're not going to have to do it. That's never an option. But what is possible is that the labor and suffering that you must endure can be done consciously and intentionally. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what in the Gurdjieff writings 
as transmitted to us by Uspensky, might have to do with conscious labor and intentional suffering. There's a book that I'll bring in uh, that, has, that was published maybe a little over a year ago called The Struggle of the Magicians. Um, it's by the same man who wrote Eating the Eye, and his name is escaping my mind at this very moment. But I, I'll bring the book in. Um, it's a book about the struggle between Gurdjieff and Uspensky. And the title is taken from the name of one of Gurdjieff's um, dance works, The Struggle of the Magician. So there is someone that has investigated that particular <coughs> um, point, that particular issue. And that intrigues me because, of course, the split between Gurdjieff and Uspensky mirrors in the history of analytical psychology the split between Jung and Freud. So it's kind of interesting that you know, we have that sort of coming together blending and then a breaking apart rather abruptly um, and it really was never fully mended the 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 split between Gurdjieff and Uspensky uh, and there were times when people who were following one group were forbidden from associating with people who followed the other it was it was fairly uh, uh, um, there was a lot of disparity between the two groups and uh, that of course mirrors the difference between Jung and Freud and the people who followed one versus the other. So that's kind of interesting. There, there are a few books that <clears throat> do present that, at least from the point of view of the Ospensky group. There's a book by Ospensky called The Fourth Way, which is a series of question-answer sessions taken from these group meetings. There's also two other books that have been published by Ospensky, A Record of Meetings and A Further Record. By the end of class, uh, we'll have a whole list of books. Um, about these people, and these are three by Ospensky. There are also some books published by followers of Gurdjieff that try to describe uh, his meetings, which usually occurred around dinner. Uh, there's a book by Rena Hands called The Diary of Madame Ego Pour Suite, um, which is French for sewer for sweets, which was the nickname that she was given by Gurdjieff, um, where she describes the toast to the idiots that he used to use uh, at his dinners. So. Um, I think what makes the, the teaching groups difficult to describe is the fact that they were very organic and didn't seem to have an agenda based on the person who was supposedly in charge. For example, in some of the later groups uh, that Gurdjieff ran in Paris, he would just have someone read a chapter from uh, Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, and that was it. And then people would ask questions or not, depending on what, what was uh, happening to them. But those three books by Ospensky will give you, the fourth way is readily available, I think. Um, and that'll give you an example of what goes on at the groups, which is pretty non-remarkable. One thing that he did call people on rather regularly was asking questions that he called formatory, that didn't really come from an active participation in one of the three centers, the moving, the emotional, or the thinking center. The formatory question was part of formatory center, which is you know a, a center that just acts like an automaton. This would be a kind of question that would be asked, for example, to boost your uh, persona up in the face of your uh, group mates. That would be a formatory question, as opposed to a question that really mattered. Yeah. yeah. My goal in this is to, to get people to be thinking about these three writers and attempt to not necessarily blend or reduce one, one school of thought to another, but it has always struck me that there are similarities in um, method and results although not necessarily in terminology between Jung and Gurdjieff and Uspensky. I think that all three of these people were trying
to bring those that followed them to the same place, to the same understanding. But they did it in different ways. So that's my goal. Uh, I think that the, the writings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky for too long have been housed over here in kind of the esoteric section of the bookstores and not placed where I think they belong, which is on the shelves of, of uh, psychology and theology. As Jung also. I think Jung spends too much time just on the psychology shelf. I think he needs to be brought over to uh, the esoteric shelf and the religion shelf because I think that there's, there's something there uh, for, um, in all of those fields. But that really is my goal. And I think when you start to interact with these ideas, it can't help but awaken something in you, what um, Gurdjieff called magnetic center. That when you begin to look at these ideas and, and consider them deeply, something happens, and Jung, of course, would call this the awakening of synchronistic moments. Something happens, and all of a sudden, things start happening to you that bring more of what you need to grow in this direction spontaneously. In Jungian psychology, we're trained to look at synchronicities. Well, that's no different than establishing a magnetic center in, in Gurdjieff and Ospensky terminology, a part of you that then draws to you experiences that move you more quickly along the path. And psychologically, of course, synchronicities occur when something is emerging from the deep unconscious and is ready to be considered by the ego. And it's one of many ways that the ego has, of, uh, one of many ways that psyche has, of presenting the ego with what the ego needs in order to progress. There's projection, there's somatizing, you know, that whole list that, that we talk about. Those are nothing more than the, the phenomena that occur when, in Gurdjieff and Ospensky terms, we establish magnetic center within ourselves. So what, what I would also like, my fundamental training, my training before I got into this business, when I was still an honest man, was mathematics, which for me was great because it moved you beneath all of the accidents down to the substance. And that sort of is what guides me as I read these people and I think, you know, I, I kind of know what they're talking about and they're using different terms, but the reality underlying those terms is what pulled me. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just the mean, the average. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you could find that reference exactly, I can expand on it. The question is on the arithmetical mean. <clears throat> Anybody else remember it or know where it is? Okay. <clears throat> Understanding may be compared to an arithmetical mean between knowledge and being. It shows the necessity for a simultaneous growth of knowledge and being. The growth of only one and diminishing of another will not change the arithmetical mean. Okay. Um, in other words, the average of one's knowledge and being comes out as understanding, which is, which is the arithmetical mean or average of these two. And if I increase my knowledge, but my being goes down, just like if I, let's say I have two numbers, seven and seven. They add up to 14, divide it by two, the arithmetical mean is seven. Huh? Now, if I increase one, let's say to 10, but I reduce the other to four, I add them together, I'm still gonna get the same arithmetic mean. So my understanding doesn't change. If I increase, let's say, my being, but lower my um, knowledge. Likewise, if I increase my knowledge, but my being goes down, I don't change my understanding. Both knowledge and being have to grow for my understanding to grow, is kind of what he's saying. Okay, I want to, I want to discuss this issue of negative emotions because that is a key point in one of the methods. There are, there are very few methods that are discussed by Gurdjieff and Ostensky, but one of the methods that are discussed, one of the methods that 
one of the methods at our discuss, I never was good at verbs, um, has to do with how we progress or how we develop uh, using the methodology that Gurdjieff and Ospensky teach. Now, in, in Search of the Miraculous, there's a discussion of three being foods, three being foods, and the discussion of these three foods begins on page 181. All this, I'll just read it and then I'll kind of give you an explanation of what's going on and it is tied to negative emotions. All the substances necessary for the maintenance of the life of the organism, for psychic work, for the higher functions of consciousness and the growth of the higher bodies are produced by the organism from the food which enters it from outside. The human organism receives three kinds of food. The ordinary food we eat, the air we breathe, and our impressions. So that the three kinds of food that are talked about the three kinds of being food are food, air, and impression. And then in the pages that follow, there are <clears throat> a tremendous number of diagrams and explanations for how each of these being foods is transformed by the law of octaves. The law of octaves is called by Gurdjieff uh, by the big, very strange name of Heptaparaparshanak. You see, just like Jung, Gurdjieff brought all these terms, you know, and, and they sort of shock you, and that's precisely the reason, I believe, why these terms are used. Heptaparaparshanak is the law of octaves or the law of seven. And a way to remember that, of course, is hept. Hepta is the root for seven, a heptagon. <clears throat> There's another uh, basic law, fundamental law, and that's the law of three, which is called by Gurdjieff triamazekamno. And here again you have the tree, tria for three. The law of three and the law of seven. Heptaparaparshanak is also called the law of octaves. And last week when we were showing how the Enneagram was set up, we saw that the law of octaves was operative in, in the zigzag line. And the law of three, or the tria mazakamno, was in the triangle connecting points three, six, and nine. Now, <clears throat> each of these, food, air, and impressions, is transformed by the organism according to the law of octaves. Now food pretty much is taken care of by our organism. We transform the first being food sort of organically, completely unconsciously. You know, even people who are in comas can metabolize, provided that the food stuff can, can get into them. And that is particularly germane because, of course, we're all in comas, according to Gurdjieff and Ostensky. It's just that our coma looks different, but we're pretty much all asleep. Now air, only is transformed so far, according to Gurdjieff and Ostensky, through natural or unconscious or automatic processes. And for air to be transformed more fully, for the organism to be able to take from the air we breathe, the subtle substances that are needed to create, remember the goal of this work is to create, is to create the soul. That's very important because the, the fundamental teaching is that we do not have a soul, we must create a soul. And so given that, this becomes a matter of our ultimate concern. Because if we don't get the substances needed to create a soul, when we die physically, we're gone. And pretty much people can't stand that too much. I know I'm uncomfortable with that myself on occasion. On <laughs> other days, I you know, think that'd be okay. Okay, so in order to distill from the air the subtle substances that we need to, to begin to create a soul, certain things have to happen. And the impressions that we take in you know, the things we see, the things we hear, all of that, will be transformed only slightly 
automatically. And in order to transform those, you really have to do something to, to get them to move along the law of octaves or the heptaparaparsanoc. Now what's needed to transform, well actually what's needed to transform food, the more subtle elements of food, certainly of air and definitely of impressions, to move them along their own octaves. Each of these develops according to an octave, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. Okay, and at each point in the octave, there's a transformation that's necessary. There's something that needs to happen to push them. And in fact, if you know anything about octaves, you know that there are <coughs> two places in an octave where the difference between one note and another changes. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Between mi and fa and ti and do, there's only one half step as opposed to between all of the other notes in the octave where there's one whole step. So from do to re, I'll write them, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and do. Between mi and fa, there's only a one-half step difference, and between ti and do, there's only a one-half step difference. At those points in the octave, unless something happens to the energy that's being transformed, it will change direction and become something other than what it should. Now there are diagrams in here that I won't find it because I'm looking for them, but let's see if I will, uh, that show um, is it 127? Yes, right, thank you. <laughs> Page 127, 128. You see that if everything were progressing as we wanted, this octave should just go do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si in a line, because that's what we want, the line being the symbol of the kind of development that we want. But because of the discontinuity or the peculiarity in the octave between mi and fa, it diverts a little bit. And then again between, now C si or T are the same, okay, depending on, we, we say sol, la, ti, do, and, and in some, Especially in Europe, they go sola si do, so don't be misled by that. C and T are the same. Between C and the next do, there's again only a half jump. And if something doesn't come in to move that forward, it changes again. So that what would happen is instead of this nice straight line that should take us nicely on evolution, which is the whole point of the law of seven, these little discontinuities in the octave cause development to fold back on itself. And this is a wonderful example of what we in analytical psychology called a repetition compulsion. I'm really developing, I'm really developing. Shit, I'm right where I started. I'm really developing, I'm really, oh no, you know, I thought I changed, but I'm not, but I'll do it again. But it's inherent in the law of octaves that that should happen, unless at these points, something else comes in to move the work forward. And what is supposed to come in at these points are called by Gurdjieff and Ospensky, oh yeah, I thought that was red. Look at that, it has a red cover and everything, but it's not well, then that means maybe, no, give it a week and it'll transform. See, this is all, okay, what happens here is that there needs to be a shock applied to the system. And the same thing here, in order to keep it going the way it ought to, there needs to be another shock. Now, much has been written on the first conscious shock, and the first conscious shock is called in the work self-remembering. This is the activity that we take to remember ourselves in the moment 
of receiving impressions. Here we go. I'm on page 188. There is, however, a possibility of increasing the output, that is, of enabling the air octave and the impression octave to develop further. For this purpose, it is necessary to create a special kind of artificial shock at the point where the beginning of the third octave is arrested. This means that the artificial shock must be applied to the note Do 48. Don't worry too much about that. This gets incredibly complicated. It has to do with where these octaves start, so bear with me. But what is meant by an artificial shock? It is connected with the moment of the reception of an impression. The note Do 48 designates the moment when an impression enters our consciousness. An artificial shock at this point means a certain kind of effort made at the moment of receiving an impression. It has been explained before that in ordinary conditions of life we do not remember ourselves. We do not remember, that is, we do not feel ourselves, are not aware of ourselves at the moment of perception of an emotion, of a thought, or of an action. And the point that he goes on to make in this paragraph is that the first conscious shock is self-remembering. That if we can train ourselves to remember ourselves in the moment of receiving an impression, that activity provides the shock needed to move the octave along without having that divergence or the change in direction. The second conscious shock is a little bit trickier, and many people have written about what it might be. Um, and it isn't clear exactly what it is from, from the writings, but on page 191 of In Search of the Miraculous, Aspensky does talk about it, and this is connected with your question about negative emotions. For the two octaves to develop further, a second conscious shock is needed at a certain point in the machine, which is us. A new conscious effort is necessary, which will enable the two octaves to continue their development. The nature of this effort demands special study. Uh, from the point of view of the general work of the machine, it can be said in general that this effort is connected with the emotional life, that it is a special kind of influence over one's emotions. But what this kind of influence really is, and how it can be produced, can be explained only in connection with a general description of the work of the human factory or the human machine. And here is the essence of this second effort. The practice of not expressing unpleasant emotions, not expressing negative emotions, of not identifying, of not considering inwardly, is the preparation for the second effort. So he doesn't really say what the second effort is, but he gives us three things that we can do to prepare for the second effort. We cannot express negative emotions, we cannot identify, and we cannot internally consider. Now, this is particularly important, and I'll give you places in the book where he talks about each of those things, but the first has to do with not expressing negative emotions. There's a misunderstanding, I think, in the writings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky that we're not supposed to even have negative emotions. Now maybe at a certain point in one's development, maybe when one becomes man number four, it's possible that we can not even have negative emotions. I don't know. But the teaching also makes it very clear that most of us are not men, women number four, that we're still one, two, or three, and as such, we're still gonna have negative emotions. The key is not expressing them, not externalizing them, or in psychological terms, containing them. When we work very often analytically and we come upon an issue where someone all of a sudden is seeing for the first time the manipulation of a good friend or a family member, how they've been sort of um, pushed around all their lives very subtly by someone who uses passive aggressive tactics or who knows what, very often when that's seen, the person becomes absolutely enraged and years and years of not acknowledging how this person has manipulated us, fooled us, jacked us around, just manifest as rage that often gets acted out. 
and often in inappropriate ways, because if it's rage, you know, it's kind of hard to go, I'm really very peeved at you. It's rage. It, it takes you over. The key, analytically, what we try to do is establish a good enough vessel so that the person can feel this emotion can be contained and ultimately work through or process in a safe place away from where damage or harm can be done. That's why it's so important. Jung always talked about the well-sealed vessel. It wasn't just you know, keeping the door closed so that nobody came in during the hour. It was so that the person felt it was a safe enough place to bring all of this. I think that's what's talked about when they talk about not expressing negative emotions. That you have them, but you use them sort of as fuel to move you along to whatever this second shock is going to be. Now, identification is talked about in uh, the Ospensky Search of the Miraculous on page 150, where he says, um, and this is in connection with uh, self-remembering, and this deprives man's views and opinions of any stability and precision. A man does not remember what he has thought or what he has said, and he does not remember how he thought or how he spoke. That's because if we don't remember ourselves in the moment, all that just goes away. This, is in this in turn, this in its turn, is connected with one of the fundamental characteristics of man's attitude toward himself and to all his surroundings, namely his constant identification with what at a given moment has attracted his attention, his thoughts or his desires, and his imagination. Identification is so common a quality that for purposes of observation it is difficult to separate it from everything else. Man is always in a state of identification, only the object of identification changes. The dynamic here is that whatever I'm involved in, a part of me goes out into the object and I lose my identity and become totally identified with that object. Now this works in harmony with Jung's idea of extroversion and introversion because an extrovert would then become identified with an object in the environment the introvert would become identified with the internal state, that, that the presence of that object, remember object here can be an event too, it doesn't have to be a thing. The introvert would become identified internally with whatever state was aroused by the presence of that object. But either way we identify and there's no separation of who I am from this event or this object. And that state of identification sweeps us away. It's sort of like being caught in a complex. We simply can't break free because we're not there. Something else has pushed us aside and we're sort of dancing around, but the person that we say we are isn't there anymore. Something else is in its place. That's the state of identification. The third recommendation to sort of foster this second conscious shock has to do with internal considering. And there are two kinds of considering that uh, Ospensky and Gurdjieff talked about. One is internal considering, and the other is external considering. And the one that is considered, uh, the kind of considering that hampers our growth is internal considering. Internal considering is when I experience something and I relate it completely to me, what they did to me, why, what this means to me. You know, how dare the Serbs do what they're doing in wherever it is they're doing it, because that destroys my ability to eat my breakfast, you know? because this is bothering me. I mean, it can get to that proportion. Um, there are several, several different times, kinds of considering. This is on page 151. On the, on the most prevalent occasions, a man is identified with what others think about him, how they treat him, what attitude they show toward him. 
He always thinks that people do not value him enough, are not sufficiently polite and courteous, and all this torments him, makes him think and suspect and lose an immense amount of energy on guesswork, on suppositions, develops in him a distrustful and hostile attitude toward people. How somebody looked at him, what somebody thought of him, what somebody said of him, all this acquires for him an immense significance. And he considers not only separate persons, but society and historically constituted conditions. Everything that displeases such a man seems to him to be unjust, illegal, wrong, and illogical. And the point of departure for his judgment is always that these things can and should be changed. Injustice is one of the words in which very often considering hides itself. When a man has convinced himself that he is indignant with some injustice, then for him to stop considering would mean reconciling himself to injustice. Then there are people who only consider, who consider, who are able to consider not only injustice or the failure of others, to value them enough, but who are able to consider, for example, the weather. Now, I, this makes me think, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe it was a year ago, but do you remember when there were a horrible bunch of tornadoes that swept through the Midwest that really wasn't looked for? I mean, they weren't predicted, but they, they kind of hit. You know, the conditions were right and who knows what, but the, the weather people or whatever they are didn't predict it. I mean, it just happened. And several people decided they were going to sue the Weather Bureau. Now, really. <laughs> That's an example of internal considering. How dare this tornado happen and we're not given warning? You know, gosh, I guess maybe it means you're insignificant to the cosmos. What do you know? You know? <laughs> but I remember that, and there are times when I'll just hear things like that and I'll think, I gotta go back and read Beelzebub's Tales because it's all in there. I mean, the, 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 what, what I would call hubris, you know, the pride of thinking that you could sue somebody because they didn't predict a natural disaster. You know, six months after I bought my home 11 years ago, my basement flooded. Gosh, I, I called my lawyer to sue God, but it didn't work. You know, it just sort of, that's one of those things. But that would be an example of internal considering. Now, external considering is something else. And the book talks about external considering on page 153. The opposite of internal considering, and what is in part a means of fighting against it, is external considering. External considering is based upon an entirely different relationship toward people than internal considering. It is adaptation toward people, to their understanding, to their requirements. By considering externally, a man does that which makes life easy for other people and for himself. External considering requires a knowledge of men, an understanding of their tastes, habits, and prejudices. At the same time, external considering requires a great power over oneself, a great control over oneself. Very often a man desires sincerely to express or somehow or other to show another man what he really thinks of him or feels about him, and so on and so forth. Further down in that paragraph, this is an example of how external considering passes into internal considering. But if a man really remembers himself, he understands that another man is a machine just as he is himself, and then he will enter into his position, the position of the other person. He will put himself in his place, and he will really be able to understand and feel what another man thinks and feels. If he can do this, his work becomes easier for him. Right external considering is very important in the work. So whatever this second shock is, it at least will require that we not express negative emotions, that we not um, internally consider, and that we not identify. And I'm reminded of the, uh, the Hindu, it's in Sanskrit, neti, neti, not this, not that. The way to the second conscious shock is really a way of not doing. We're not going to internally consider. We're not going to identify. We're not going to express negative emotions. And it seems like in the writings of the work, that's about as good as it gets. 
in terms of really giving you a methodology for handling that particular uh, shock. Now, I think it's pretty clear that um, internal considering sounds an awful lot like um, Internal considering sounds an awful lot like uh, a narcissistic personality disorder when it's carried to its you know, ultimate extreme. That somehow everything that happens is connected to me. And they've only done it to me. You know, somebody buys new china and they did it just to get you. you know, that, that kind of thing would be an example of extreme narcissism. And that would be extreme internal considering as well. So the question that you had about negative emotions, it seems sometimes that the writings and the methods that these people used increase negative emotions. The purpose being, I feel, to provide a person with a laboratory where they could begin to practice what they need to do to do this. Self-remembering was very much a part of the teaching. But the second conscious shock is only alluded to. There's an interpreter of the Gurdjieff Ospensky work, Morris Nichol, who wrote five volumes of psychological commentaries. They've just been republished. Um, they were out of print for a long time. They were republished once by um, Shambhala, and I don't think they did well. I mean, they're not the kind of thing you'd buy to read real fast on a Sunday afternoon, you know. But they've been republished in a, a nice five, six-volume version, the five books and the index. And in, in uh, these lectures, which were lectures given by uh, a follower of Gurdjieff and Ostensky, who ran his own work groups in England for quite some time, he considers for a long time what the second conscious shock is. And it's pretty clear from his writing that nothing specifically was given. The essence of it wasn't specifically given, but there were hints, there were pointers, which in any mystical teaching really is germane because nobody could take that step for you. That's the step that you have to take yourself. It's like in the Divine Comedy. At a certain point, Virgil drops out. You know, Dante's on his own. And in analytical psychology, it's the same thing. You know, the analyst or the friend with whom you share dreams or your journal or whatever, everything you read can only take you so far. But there's a point where you have to cross it yourself. You have to do it yourself. The same is in the teaching of the Kabbalah, which a colleague of mine is teaching tonight in the class next door, but I'll run the risk <laughs> of talking about it in here. There's a point in the Kabbalah where to get from the lower sephiroth, the seven lower ones, to the upper three, you have to cross the hidden 11th uh, sephira, which is Da'at. And that crossing is called the abyss. There's a point where you just have to do it. There's no connection. There's no guide. There's just the doing of it. And I think that's what's happening at this second conscious shock. Because it's the one that begins the next octave, too. Because to go from T to the next Do, you're beginning another octave. So that, that step has to be taken by each person in their own way. Because my way is not going to be your way. But there are sort of ways that we could try to generate the energy we need. Yes. I think that was one of the things that, that struck me just kind of in a very strong way of talking about part of the miracle of the different identities one has, which is what the song of Edmund one. I think there's a time when you caught off balance in between the kind of that that brief second in between the family identity, the work identity, and go, aha, that's where the action is. Right. It's like the Zen Koan, show me your face before you were born. Aha. You know, what does that mean? The face before this persona that I now wear was born. Who is that? And I think you're right. It's that space in between those little eyes. You know, that picture in here. I love the picture of the circle with all the eyes. It almost looks like a fly eye, you know? This one. That that's our situation. And we say I. And because we have that word and because we have a body, we imagine that we're whole, that we're a unity. 
And so when I say, I like coffee, I like tea, I like this, I like that, we think that it's the same I that's talking all the time. And clearly it's not, because we contradict ourselves. And the whole idea that we call it a contradiction implies that we think we're whole. We would never say that we contradict ourselves if actually there were seven people standing here. Wouldn't be a contradiction, it would just, oh, well, that one likes this, that one likes that, you know. If I like chocolate ice cream and you like vanilla, no one's going to say we're contradicting each other, we're two different people. Well, we're, we're a lot more than two different people, is the whole point of this teaching. And the way I put it, you know, the I that makes the appointment one month down the road is not necessarily the I that has to fulfill it. So the morning that comes that you have to do what the one I said you would do, and you're going, I don't want to do this, I hate this person, I hate this event, I don't want to do it. Well, but I said I would, but now I don't want to. Oh my God, and we, well, because the I that said you would, or in Jungian terms, the complex that said you would, is not the complex that now feels it has to fulfill it. And so there's, there's a tremendous pull that we experience inside ourselves. Okay, yes. It's the idea that if we, yes, precisely, if we can remain present, go ahead. Right. Right. See, if we can, if we, right, if we work on self-remembering, and see, here's where I think Jung's notion of the self, of course, this isn't in the Aspensky gurdjieff writings, but self-remembering, if my ego, that is so easily swept away by this, that, and the other thing, can remember the self as much as possible, then all of the many contradictions cease to be puzzling. They just become facts, and I won't run away from them. Because the only thing that gives me coherence, the only thing in my personality from a Jungian perspective that gives me unity is the self. And the ego's relationship to the self is what allows the ego to experience unity. The ego can't experience on its own because it can't experience unity on its own because the ego's pulled, you know, to this complex or defend, 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 which is what the ego does best. And it has to in order to allow us to get up and go to work. But if we can drop down to that level of the self, then the ego can let up a little bit and laugh sometimes. You know, okay. Oh, well, I guess I got a little identified with a negative father there when I yelled at you and told you you shouldn't drink coffee in your cubicle, sorry. And, and you know, you kind of begin to open up to the fact that you contain contradictions and that itself is not contradictory to who you are. So I think, yes, yeah, self-remembering is a way for us to get some sort of constant in the midst of the flow, in the midst of the turbulence. Right. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.